0: Hello listeners, as an enhancement to your listening experience, I am now going to present these archive episodes unedited in their entirety, which includes all of my afterthoughts. So, continue listening after the outro music if you want to hear what I thought of the episode. And, if you are enjoying the podcast, please support it by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard.
1: You've got speed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. My I out. Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind.
0: Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode 212 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 11, pre-launch. The first piece of Apollo 11 to reach the Cape was the lunar lander shipped from Grumman's Long Island plant aboard the Super Guppy, an even larger refinement of the Pregnant Guppy. The spacecraft arrived two weeks later, but before these units could be mated to the rocket, they had to be taken first to the operations building for final checkout. This building, a block-long structure five miles south of the assembly building, contained two of the world's largest vacuum chambers, one of them big enough to hold the lunar lander and the command module mated together. These chambers could simulate an altitude of 200,000 feet, which was about as close to space as it was possible to get without going there. And the access hatches in the sidewalls let the flight crew enter the vehicles so they could practice the mission in the actual spacecraft in an approximation of real vacuum of space. For these tests, the crew had to be in full pressure suits with rescue teams at the ready because an accident here could be just as fatal as an accident in orbit. From about April onward, Armstrong, Aldrin, and Collins literally lived with spacecraft. When they were at the Cape, they slept on the fourth floor of the operations building within shouting distance of the test bays. NASA had foreseen that the pilots would have little else on their minds this close to the launch, and they had installed an in-house motel with a diner, a small gym, and a miniature hospital. This had the effect of insulating the astronauts from the press. Nobody was allowed across the threshold except Chef Lou Hartzel and a handful of attendants who had been with the astronauts since the early days of Mercury. While Armstrong, Collins, and Aldrin hovered over the spacecraft, the booster was slowly rising inside the main bay of the Vertical Assembly Building. In February, the first stage of the Saturn V came by seagoing barge down the Mississippi from the Boeing plant at Michoud, across the Gulf of Mexico, through the Okeechobee waterway across Florida, and up the Atlantic coast to the Cape. A canal from the Banana River made it possible for the barge to line up almost alongside the vertical assembly building, and the mammoth booster was hoisted off the barge onto a block-long dolly with 64 wheels, all steerable, and towed inside the low bay. But before the stacking process could begin, The foundation had to be set in place. The immense structure that would support the rocket until the moment of liftoff was known as the mobile launch platform. Though designed to be portable, it weighed 6 million pounds. It was a complete launch pad with its own umbilical tower, a 40-story steel gantry, and high-speed elevators nine swing arms, and a forest of supply lines needed to service the spacecraft and the three Saturn stages. Apollo 11 would be connected to the platform from the time it was assembled in the VAB through the three-mile ride to the launch pad and up to the few milliseconds before liftoff. The assembly process for the Apollo 11 began in January 1969, when one of the mighty crawler transports clanked under one of those mobile launchers and carried it off. An army of men with walkie-talkies, ranging from the roadway to the highest catwalk of the assembly building, guided the crawler and its skyscraper cargo through the doors, positioning itself with remarkable accuracy. The crawler lowered the mobile launch platform onto its new temporary footing, six steel pillars rooted in the concrete foundation of the vehicle assembly building. The first Saturn stage, its initial inspection in the low bay now complete, was moved to the transfer aisle in the high bay of the VAB. Fifty stories up, the 250 ton crane lowered a hook to the huge booster and raised it above the deck of the mobile launch platform. The first stage was positioned over a square hole in the launch deck, the flame pit, and held in place by a quartet of 800-ton clamps. Then the scores of pipes and cables that would feed and care for the machine until the moment of liftoff were attached with elaborate couplings that would be violently disconnected in the final milliseconds. The first stage was now wedded to the umbilical tower, and from there, the lines ran down the tower outside the VAB and into the long, narrow concrete building next door that housed the launch control rooms. The launch control center, though it looked like a tiny appendage angled out from the base of the Vehicle Assembly Building, was an enormous structure in its own right, and its design had won a national award for architect Matt Erlob. It was eight stories tall, set at an angle to face the launch pad at Complex 39, three miles away, and its eastern face was topped with a row of giant windows tilted toward the sky. Behind these thick glass walls were the firing rooms, the terminus of the electronic nervous system that monitored the Saturn's health and controlled its pulse. A sea of consoles covered the main floor, an open area the size of three basketball courts, and teams of system experts from NASA, North American, Boeing, Douglas, and the other major contractors watched over the screens Around the clock, with the first stage connected directly to the firing room, the booster came to life, and as the rocket grew in the assembly bay next door, each element was connected to the control room in turn. The Saturn V's second stage was shipped from California aboard the Point Barrow, a converted Navy landing ship, and it had run into trouble on the way. Just this side of the Panama Canal, the ship had sailed into the teeth of a major storm and had taken a ferocious beating. But when the S-2 stage was unloaded and moved into the lower bay, a special inspection proved the rocket to be in perfect health. It was moved to the transfer aisle, and the bridge crane hoisted it high into the cathedral and lowered it to the mating ring of the first stage. Eight hours later, the two stages were aligned with micrometric precision, and the assemblers drove home a trio of foot-thick steel pins and a ring of bolts. Now, the first and second stages were mechanically linked into a single unit, already 20 stories tall. The third stage was shipped by air from the Douglas plant in Sacramento, aboard the Super Guppy. The fuselage of the old Globemaster, expanded to four times its original size, had just exactly enough clearance for the third stage with a couple of inches to spare. To load the rocket, the front end of the plane cockpit and all was uncoupled and swung out of the way on hinges. In April, the lunar lander, with its four legs folded like a dead spider, was placed inside a 30-foot-tall aluminum cone known as the spacecraft adapter. This conical section separated the 13-foot diameter spacecraft from the 22-foot diameter third stage, and it functioned as the garage for the lunar lander. With the lander installed, the adapter was mated to the bottom ring of the service module. This formed a five story stack that was the payload for the three stage Saturn booster. On April 14th, this stack, including the adapter, the lunar module, the service module, and the command module, was trucked in a vertical position five miles north to the assembly building. It was then hoisted to the pinnacle of the main bay and joined to the top of the third stage. When the umbilicals were connected, Apollo 11 was born. The rocket was now able to respond not only to the control room, but to the instruments arrayed in the cockpit, 36 stories above the main engine. Inside the high bay, great drawbridges surrounded the rocket at a dozen levels to give the workers access to the various stages. On May 19th, the launch escape rocket, the topmost element of the stack, was bolted to the command module, and the next day the doors of the assembly building were opened and the crawler lifted the launch platform, now mated to the Saturn V, and started for the pad. From catwalks cantilevered into the steel canyon of the high bay, Engineers sighted with surveyors' transits and talked on headsets to the cab of the crawler hundreds of feet below as the tower moved majestically into the sunlight. From any angle, it was an incredible sight. At one mile per hour, the crawler laid its eight-foot treads on the dual ribbons of Alabama red gravel that led to the launch complex the launch site with the concrete foundation for the mobile launcher was actually two half pyramids split down the middle by a 50 foot corridor known as the flame trench when all five saturn first stage engines were running the flame would be a fifth of a mile long and this exhaust had to have some place to go or it would consume everything. To deflect the flame to either side, a 700-ton steel wedge would be positioned in the trench directly under the rocket exhaust. The wedge was covered with 4 inches of ceramic, and the flame trench was lined with refractory brick. But, to keep everything from melting away, they would have to spray water into the trench at a rate of 1,000 gallons a second. To deliver the mobile launcher to the lockdown pylons on top of the pyramid, the crawler had to climb a long sloping ramp with a 5% grade, and to keep the deck from tilting as the machine made its way up the hill, the builders had installed an update of the Roman stonemasons' level. A pair of pipes filled with mercury ran diagonally across the crawler from corner to corner in a giant X. At each corner the tubes bent upward, and a wire projected down to within a whisker of the mercury. The slightest tilt in any direction would short one of the four wires and send hydraulic fluid to the appropriate pistons. The system was so sensitive that the tip of the Saturn stack 360 feet above the deck never moved away from the vertical more than 4 or 5 inches. The crawler was able to position its 12 million pound load on the pad within one inch of dead center. Then it lowered the launcher onto its mountings and crawled away. The launch platform was plugged into the pad umbilicals and the Saturn was reconnected with the firing room, now three and a half miles away. All that remained was installing the explosives and filling the tanks. That would take another two months. A few weeks before the launch, the American people began to arrive. Over the last ten years, this adventure had cost them roughly $200 apiece, every man, woman, and child. And now, a sizable cross-section of the country was heading for Florida to check on their investment. A glance at the faces moving down Highway US-1 revealed an amazing spectrum of humanity. At the coffee shops and gas stations along the coast, androgynous teenagers in tie-dye sarongs mingled with Marines and factory workers and newlyweds. The diversity underscored the fact that the country had somehow been able to organize this moon mission while simultaneously fighting a jungle war in Asia and civil unrest at home. The decade of the 60s had not been kind to the United States. From the Bay of Pigs to the Miley Massacre, a series of events had battered the nation's psyche. Great leaders were assassinated one after the other. Almost every major city was swept by fire and riot. A cultural revolution split fathers and mothers from their sons and daughters and from each other. But despite war and hunger and the dread of watching the evening news, nearly a million people were on their way, drawn by the feeling that their country was about to do something monumental. The people knew Apollo 11 was an epic historical event, and they wanted to say that they were there when it launched. In addition to the ordinary taxpayers who gathered on the beaches and roads of eastern Florida, NASA invited 20,000 VIPs to watch the liftoff from viewing stands near the vehicle assembly Building. NASA set up portable bathrooms, water tanks, and refreshment facilities to keep their guests comfortable. Half of the Congress were coming down and nearly half of the governors, along with the diplomatic corps and several score of foreign ministers. The roster included Supreme Court Justices, International Tycoons, the Archbishop of New York, Jack Benny, Johnny Carson, and the Prince of Paris, a direct descendant of the Emperor Napoleon. Between Houston and the Cape, 3,500 journalists were issued NASA accreditation badges, some even to Soviet reporters. But, on the other hand, since January, Deke Slayton had tried to keep the press at a distance, simply because Armstrong's crew had so much training to pack in. Finally, Slayton gave in and agreed to a last press conference before the mission, and Armstrong's crew spent most of Saturday, July 5, 1969, talking to media. At this point, the men were well into their 21-day pre-mission medical quarantine, and so On this summer afternoon, they strolled onto the stage wearing hospital masks and did not remove them until they had taken their places inside a plastic-enclosed booth. A few reporters smiled back at them from behind their own masks. The journalist directed only a few questions to Collins. They were much more interested in his crewmates and especially his commander. For seven months now, Armstrong had been telling interviewers that he wished the press would convey that Apollo 11 was a massive group effort, that it was a mistake to focus on him. But he had not been successful. Now I have a series of clips of the more interesting questions Armstrong and his crew were asked during the last press conference.
1: Uh. Neil, uh, Marvin Miles, Los Angeles Times. I'd like to know, I understand understand that you're going to take manual control of the descent. Can you tell us at what point how low you will take that control, how far you will burn down, and how low you could stage in the board and go to a X if necessary? We we have made some significant improvements in in the flight control system and the computer's interaction with that system in recent months. Uh, allows us to go into somewhat hybrid methods of manual and automatic. Uh, the predicted method at this point, although we have a great deal of flexibility and choice based on the, on the situation at the time, would be to uh, maintain manual control of attitude and automatic control of throttle uh, through the final descent from an altitude of uh, somewhere between 500 and 1,000 feet until such time as the automatic throttling rate of descent was unsatisfactory, at which time we'll go full manual on the throttle, that is, rate of descent command on the throttle, which is operating through the computer. Should that become unsatisfactory, then we can go to a full manual throttle, uh, flying it in a manner like a normal VTOL machine would be flown. James Burke, BBC. You have mentioned that your flight, like all others, contains very many risks. What, in view of that, will your plans be in the extremely unlikely event that the lunar module does not come up off the lunar surface? Quite well, an unpleasant thing to think about. We've chosen not to think about that up to the present time. We uh, we don't think that's at all a likely situation. It's certainly, a possible one, but. Uh, At the present time, we're left without recourse at that account. Uh, Mr. Armstrong, uh, er, earlier there was some concern expressed that uh, you were rushed to get in all your training necessary for this flight. What is the uh, uh, state of your training readiness now? The reason that that was a concern is that the, the final training for a crew is the last thing that takes place. In other words, procedures must be developed and the simulations completely set up and the simulators ready to fly and the checklists made and so on before the final training can take place. And these, of course, were the pacing items, these intermediate things to the final training. At this point in time, uh, we have a high confidence level that the procedures and uh, checklists, simulations that we are now operating are correct and will fly the mission the way they are now detailed. So uh, of, of course there was a good deal of concern in our own minds and, and many other people in, in the organization that all these things for the descent, ascent, surface work would fall into place and in time. We do uh, feel at this point that we've been very fortunate. In, in, and having those things uh, make the schedule along with the with the hardware, which of course is on the path now and ready to Uh Nick Chris with the Los Angeles Times. I know your main concern now is only getting to the moon and getting back, but I wonder if you could tell us just briefly what you think the uh, role of the country space program is going to be in the next few years and what roles you would like to play in it. Where is going? In other words, not after the next lunar shots, but five, ten, eight years from now. I, I certainly think that that the direction uh, uh, that we will go is beginning to gel. I see evidences at our level that that people are beginning to home in on things that look practical. uh, And uh, I don't know what those those agency and national decisions will be at this point, but uh, certainly all the front runners, Space Station, the uh, Space Shuttle, the Lunar Shuttle, Advanced Lunar Exploration, and the Early Planetary Explorations are are the contenders to reckon with. And I certainly think that those will be the ones from which our our early goals are, are selected. Uh, Daily Mail, London. Two questions. Firstly, what precautions have been taken at your own homes to prevent you catching germs from your own families? And secondly, is this the last period you'll spend at home here with your families? Take back that mic. My wife and children have signed a statement that they have no germs and... uh, Yes, this will be the the last weekend that we'll be home with our family. So, seriously, there there are no special precautions being taken. I suppose if one of the kids came down with measles or some childhood disease, which we uh, had not had previously, then we would uh, take measures to separate ourselves from them. However, in the absence of some uh, overt evidence that they're ill, we are taking no precautions. I have two questions. Uh, what do you anticipate will be the most difficult task that you have to perform during your walk on the moon? And second, what do you plan to do in your spare time when you're back in the LRL, when you're cooped up all this time, in between deep breathings and business? Most, probably the most difficult part of the lunar surface work isn't on the surface, it's in the LEM cockpit. The preparation for the activities on the surface, the, uh, and the work subsequent to the EVA when we again have to to operate the pressurized suit inside the, the lunar module cockpit. Those are certainly the most difficult, possibly the most tiring, and uh, certainly the most potentially hazardous of, of, the, of the things that go on. Mr. Armstrong, at the time you step down on the moon, what will be your overriding consideration and what will be your main concern? Well, immediately upon touchdown, our concern is the integrity of the lunar module itself. And uh, probably wise to point out that immediately after touchdown, as a matter of fact, for the first two hours after touchdown, we have a very busy time verifying the integrity of the lunar module and all its systems. Without that integrity, of course, we are unable to complete the remaining objectives and we cannot safely continue with the, the lunar surface work and we cannot safely again return uh, to lunar orbit. Well, that of course is the most important thing and it'll it, it will evidence itself to you all here by a great deal of uh, technical discussions about systems between the spacecraft and the ground uh, during a time period when most people will be wondering well what does it look like out there or what do you see and we, understand that desire for everyone to know those kinds of things that I'm sure will be eager to comment on, but reluctant to do so in the face of these more important considerations on which the success of the entire rest of the lunar mission depends.
0: Two days after the press conference on Monday, July 7th, Armstrong, Aldrin, and Collins headed back to the Cape for the last time. For the next nine days, Their world was a high-tech monastery, equally divided between the simulators and the crew quarters. President Nixon had planned to visit them here on the night before launch to have dinner, but canceled after Dr. Chuck Berry publicly worried that Nixon might infect the astronauts. Privately, Armstrong and his crew fumed about the gaff. The president was no more likely to harbor germs than the dozens of people they worked with every day. For Mike Collins, the incident was a momentary distraction from the awesome sense of responsibility for the mission he was about to fly. That pressure was very much on the mind of NASA administrator Tom Payne when he dined in the crew quarters on Thursday, july tenth, over dinner. Administrator Payne made an extraordinary promise to Armstrong's crew. He said, Don't take any unnecessary risk to accomplish the mission. If anything should go wrong, don't hesitate to abort. Payne said he would see to it that they would not have to get back in line for another flight. They would be assigned to the very next mission to try again. For Collins, Payne's promise took some of the pressure off, but not for Neil Armstrong. Neil was very aware that the nation's prestige was riding on this mission. It was impossible not to be aware in the fishbowl they had been living in since January. And although he felt ready, and sensed that Collins and Aldrin did too, Neil knew Also, that the landing would test the entire Apollo system, the hardware, the mission control teams, and themselves, to the limit. Even on the morning of July 16, 1969, as Armstrong led his crew out into the TV lights and onto the transfer van, he had little doubt that they would make it safely back to Earth. But the landing, in his mind, was still a 50-50 proposition. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina, this is Michael Anish, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode 212 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Apollo 11 Pre-Launch. I want to give a big shout out to all my longtime listeners, thanks for staying subscribed, and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners, I'm glad you're here. Make sure you sign up for the email list and connect with me on Twitter and Facebook, You can do all that as well as download every single episode of the podcast on the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Today, we salute the mere level donors. There is one donor so far this year. MIR donors give $80 or more during the calendar year. Thanks for your continued support, MIR donors. As usual, I had a few afterthoughts. First, I want to give credit to Mike Gray, the author of the book, Angle of Attack, Harrison Storms and the Race to the Moon. This is where most of the information for this episode came from. I hope you recall who Harrison Storms was. In case you don't, Stormy managed the design and construction of the Apollo command and service modules, and he was fired in the aftermath of the Apollo 1 fire which was a questionable decision from my point of view. So after all the work he put into the projects, Storms was not invited to the launch of Apollo 11, either by oversight or as punishment. This kind of upset Storms, so as you can tell from the book, Angle of Attack, I'm going to read an excerpt on this Excerpt begins. Al Rockwell, the axle man from Pittsburgh, whose only connection with this event was the luck to have merged with North American 18 months earlier, was now parading as instant aerospace pioneer, and already making plans to remove Lee Atwood from the picture. Bill Bergen the former head of Martin, now bounded back onto center stage in the last act as the savior of Apollo. And in the ultimate twist, the moon landing itself, launched by President Kennedy 2,974 days earlier, had fallen into the lap of a man he despised, Richard Milhouse Nixon. End excerpt. So there was a little bitterness there, probably. (laughs) And I think for good reasons, really. But Stormy got to see the launch anyway. General Harvey Powell, a former Air Force officer who worked for North American, had chartered a boat on the Banana River, and he asked Storms to join him for the launch. Moving on to the next subject, How about that reporter's question to Armstrong? What will you do if the ascent stage doesn't fire? And Neil's reply was that they would have no recourse if that happened, which meant they weren't coming home. The ascent stage was one of the critical systems where there was no backup. It had to work. And what did you think about Minister Payne's promise to put the Armstrong crew on the next Apollo flight if they had to abort this one? I guess he was saying that he would much prefer they abort than take any unnecessary risk. But that was quite a promise. I think that would have given me some peace of mind. But that's just me. Okay. I posted some pictures and the audio for this episode on the webpage, spacerockethistory.com. I hope you check that out. I was pleased to receive several donations to support the podcast. We did a lot better than last week. Thank you so much. (laughs) Magnus B. from Australia donated at the shuttle level and earned his rocket emoji. Asa B. from New York donated at the Apollo level. Paul K. donated at the Apollo level and earned his moon emoji. Kurt H. increased his pledge on Patreon from the Apollo level to the Salyut Skylab level with rocket and moon emojis. Snap pledged on Patreon at the Orion level. And Craig S. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. Thank you so much, Magnus, Asa, Paul, Kurt, Osnap, and Craig. I certainly do appreciate it. So, that brings the total Patreons to 112. That's 38 short of the goal of 150 before the end of the year, and overall donors have reached 182 with a goal of reaching 300 by the end of the year. Now... For those of you who believe in what we are trying to accomplish with this podcast, which is an oral history of early space exploration, if you think that is a worthy goal and you want to be a part of the team, please consider supporting the podcast with a small donation. Just go to the homepage and click on one of the links on the top right side of the page and join the Space Rocket History team. For those of you who have already donated for 2017, I certainly do appreciate it. I have several of these Orion Desk Model Kits to give out and have another one this week. Remember, this is a model of the Orion spacecraft, service module, and solar arrays. It's made out of cardstock. To assemble it, you just push out the pre-cut parts and fold them together. Now, I did use some scotch tape on mine to hold it together. To select this week's winner, I gave every donor a number. Actually, I gave everybody a donor last week. I put the range in Google's random number generator and got the number two. Donor number two is John Bright, a Patreon donor at the Orion level. So, John Bright, if you would email me, mike at spacerockethistory.com, and tell me your address, and I will mail this Orion model out to you. Don't be sad if you did not win this week. You'll get another chance next week, and this is for all donors. That's where I'm drawing the pool from to win that prize there. I was pleased to see the podcast received two new five-star ratings on iTunes over the past week. I would like to thank Apollo King and Jordan Ramsey Game Critic for taking the time and effort to write a very kind review and giving the podcast the all-important five-star rating. Thank you. I appreciate your taking the time to do that. I want to encourage everyone to share the podcast. Feel free to link the homepage or a particular episode on all social media. And thanks to those who've already done so, we'll cover the retweeters in the first week of July. And this brings us to the end of content for this episode. You're welcome to stay and listen to my off-topic thoughts if you want. Thanks for sticking around, folks. I hope you enjoyed that episode. I'm not certain, but I hope to get to the actual launch next week <laughs> I hope I get there next week but if I find some more interesting stuff I'll put it in there but I'm hoping I get to that launch in podcast statistics last week I told you the top 10 countries for downloads and now I have 11 through 20 the these are countries 11 through 20 in number of downloads for May 2017 coming in at 11 is New Zealand Number 12. Italy moves up to 12. Denmark jumps up to 13. Norway is at 14. Luxembourg is at 15. Ireland is at 16. Austria remains at 17. Spain is at 18. South Africa is 19 and Belgium is 20. I want to give a big shout out to all my listeners in countries 11 through 20. Thank you so much for listening. Well, have you been reading the news from SpaceX? They are really ramping up the launches. They're now planning to launch the Falcon 9 once every two or three weeks. Now remember, last summer, a Falcon 9 blew up on the pad. But SpaceX is recovering very well from that explosion, but it did do a lot of damage to the pad. So that was pad 40. So they had to move their Falcon 9 over to pad 39A. But now they're getting close to finishing the repairs on pad 40. And their goal is to do that by the end of the summer. So then after that's repaired, they'll move the Falcon 9 over to pad 40, which will leave pad 39 open to launch the... Falcon Heavy, which is essentially three Falcon 9s strapped together. I believe they said it was about 5.1 million pounds of thrust on the Falcon Heavy, so it will be quite a bit more spectacular than the Falcon 9. I believe SpaceX is now scheduling the launch for the Falcon Heavy sometime in the third quarter. Now, that's pretty ambitious, but I hope they make it, and I hope I get to go see it launched. It will be something to behold, certainly. 5.1 million pounds of thrust. You'll probably feel that one a little bit. (laughs) So, in recognition of SpaceX, ULA, and other commercial space programs, I'm going to combine the ISS level of donation with the MIR level. that'll kind of be another space station level there. There was nobody at the $90 ISS level anyway. And I'm going to turn the $90 level into the commercial space programs. Now, I will hope this will be a competition with some donors choosing to donate in honor of SpaceX and some for ULA and some for Boeing and any of the other companies. So... That will be available very soon. Okay, that's about all I have this week. I hope to have episode 213 up by next Thursday. So long for now.